0: Five, four, three, two, one. You are listening
1: to the Mango Tea Podcast with and D.K.
0: We are a nonpartisan Jamaican and Caribbean podcast for the diaspora. We give you tea with a slice of mango mm. and information on current events, politics, and politics, finance, sports, and culture. We created this podcast for the diaspora to know what's happening in the Caribbean beyond the gossip. Welcome to a new episode of Mango Tea Podcast, where we give you tea with a slice of mango. In this episode, we are sipping tea with Professor Wendell Wallace from the University of the West Indies. He is a criminologist, a lawyer, a mediator, and everything in between. We recorded this episode ahead of the August 10th Trinidadian national elections, and What we wanted you all to have an understanding of post-election is what the situation was like. There was a lot of controversy, a lot of racism, and also a lot of excitement. So this episode is really going to give you a holistic view on everything. I really hope you listen, digest, and enjoy. All right, let's start.
1: Five, four, three, two, one... You
0: are listening to the Mango Tea Podcast with Judy N.D.K. We are a nonpartisan Jamaican and Caribbean podcast for the diaspora. We give you tea with a slice of mango Mm. and information on current events, politics and politics, finance, sports and culture. We created this podcast for the diaspora to know what's happening in the Caribbean beyond the gossip. Welcome to a new episode of Mango Tea Podcast, where we give you tea with a slice of mango. Today, we have a guest with us from the island of Trinidad and Tobago. As usual, we give you nothing but illustrious guests from all around the diaspora. And we have Professor Wendell C. Wallace from the University of the West Indies. He graduated from the University of the West Indies. University of London, and Northumbria University. He is an attorney at law, a mediator, a lecturer at UE, an author, a researcher, and his research primarily focuses on criminal justice and criminology with a focus on policing, law reform, tourism, and its relationship to crime, and a few others. Professor Wallace, thank you for joining us today.
2: Uh, thank you. It is my distinct pleasure to be uh, with you.
0: So uh, I think one of the things, listing out everything that um, we know about you, how do you manage it all? <laughs> Being an attorney, a mediator, a lecturer, and of course, you have a, a family life as well. So how do you balance it all? <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, you know, that's one of the questions that I've always uh, been asked uh, at interviews. How do you manage? And uh, my response is normally work hard, sleepless, play less. But importantly, I try to manage my time um, in an efficient manner. So I make very good notes. I have this to do. I have court. I have a mediated settlement to decide upon. I have a particular lecture at a particular time. It's very difficult, but I've learned to manage it and manage my time well.
0: Okay, you are an inspiration to us all. (laughs) Okay, so Dr. Wendell, Professor Wendell, we're going to go into the hard-hitting questions. Um, As I mentioned before, so our first question is, and I think this is going to be one of the hardest ones, um, what's your favorite mango?
2: Without a doubt, uh, my favorite mango is starch mango.
0: Starch mango? Can you describe it? Can you describe it to us a little bit?
2: Um, Throughout the Caribbean, we have different varieties of mangoes. We have what's maybe known as the water starch, which is uh, quite common to the Caribbean. Uh, But the starch mango is a smaller mango, probably about the size of a folded fist um it is very very sweet uh the only drawback with your mango is that um you know most people in trinidad and tobago and jordy the caribbean will tell you starch mango it leaves a lot of fiber between the teeth mm-hmm. um but you know it's the best mango that you know i'm, I'm telling you about it and feeling down the starch
0: <laughs> you know what in jamaica we call that a stringy mango All right yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You know what? Um, I know it's not mango season, but we over here are missing, um, we're missing mango, authentic, real mango that grows from a tree and not from in a lab. So if you can have about 50 starchy mango for everyone in the Caribbean, <laughs> <laughs> for a diaspora
1: uh-huh. uh, No problem.
0: Okay. All right. Um, so mm. um, we have a mango in Jamaica called East Indian. Um, it's a little bit bigger and it's more uh, fleshy mm-hmm. or more meaty. Do you have something similar?
2: Yeah, we I think we call it in Trinidad mango, yeah. sort of bigger mango. Yeah.
0: And we also yeah. had um, someone on recently from Trinidad, and he mentioned the cutlass mango, yes. which yes. I was taken aback yes. on. Yes, very sweet mango, but not my favorite. Not your favorite. Okay, okay. Now that we've gotten the harder question out the way, um, we can dive into some of the easier questions. Um, so recently this week, um, it was on, particularly on July 27th, it was the 30 year anniversary of the attempted coup in Trinidad and Tobago. Um, and from my perspective, right, growing up in Jamaica, living in Jamaica, all that it was, it was kind of a, a, like a what moment there was a coup in the English speaking Caribbean besides um, what happened in Grenada, which I learned about later. Um, And I know it was, um, and that event was where um, members of a radical Muslim group um, took over Red House, which is the the parliamentary house in Trinidad and Tobago. And um, they held hostages from the government, including the prime minister as well. Did I get that straight? Uh, you're certainly a very good uh, historian, Julie. <laughs> so can you go into a little bit more details about why why there is the coup and what the ramifications of it were?
2: All right, Julie. Um, well, for, for yourself and for your listeners, another hat that I wore um, is that of a police officer for probably about 10, about 10 to 15 years. At the time of the, att- we call it the attempted coup. At the time of the attempted coup in 1990, I was the police recruit. Um, I was stationed in Tobago Uh, for most persons, uh, some persons may not know but Trinidad and Tobago, they are separate islands, you know, they're separated by water but it's a unitary state. So I was in Tobago at that time. I remember the the Friday afternoon quite distinctly I was at my home in Tobago and I went um, to play some football the afternoon and when I got back at 7pm, I got home at approximately 7pm, my father said to me, you have to go to work immediately you have to go to work immediately. I said, why do I have to go to work? I just came home, I, I am off on the weekend and he said, go look at the television. And when I looked at the television, I saw um, Yasin Abu Bakr speaking on the television, saying that we have taken over the state of Trinidad and Tobago. We will form the government. Uh, do not do it. We will keep you informed. And there was some armed Muslim, um, Muslim means standing behind him. And he was pretending or saying that he's now in charge of the government of Trinidad and Tobago. So that, that's the initial um, part of the coup as I came across it. The coup in itself, the coup d'etat, is an, was an attempt by a radical... Muslim-based group in Trinidad and Tobago, led by Lennox Philip, then known as Yassin Abu Bakr. Uh, He was a former police officer as well. Really? Yeah, he was a former police officer. Um, He had grown very disenchanted with the National Alliance for Reconstruction Government, led by the Prime Minister, then Prime Minister, Arthur Napoleon Raymond Robinson. Um, At the point in time, the Jamaat had been occupying some lands at Mukarapo Road in St. James, but they extended into state land, and the state was saying, we need our land. Uh, police officers and soldiers started occupying the lands and pushing back against the Muslimin. Um, unfortunately, at that time, the social situation, the socioeconomic economic situation in Trinidad and Tobago was not at its best. We had just gone to the World Bank. Um, people were cutting back. The government were cutting back on salaries. People were losing jobs. Uh, people, um, you had the, the that era is seen as the beginning of the illicit drug trade in Trinidad and Tobago. So there were a lot of social discomfort within the the island and um, the Muslimin. So my knowledge took advantage of that situation and staged the, the could the attempted coup.
0: Okay. You know what? I was speaking, I actually had someone from Trinidad mm-hmm. and Tobago on. He is a world-renowned DJ, um, our friend DJ Jell. And the story that he's heard um, is there was a police yes. officer, a young police officer. She saw some illicit activity by members of Uh, between her colleagues and she came to um, uh, Abu Bashir, and said he saw she saw this and then he said that was one of the reasons why he went and took over um, the Red House. Is that semi-accurate or was that an influence (laughs) on what happened?
2: there is some credence to that right um he claims that mm-hmm. um the female police officer deceased now bernard james because she was killed eventually that it is claimed it is alleged that she saw some illegal activities by um, police officers as well as by the then um, attorney general of trinidad and tobago who was subsequently you know he was assassinated and his murder has never been solved um, and he claimed that that was one of the reasons but from my perspective, um, I don't really see it as being okay. uh, any real reason. I know for a fact that a lot of the activities surrounded the fact that the government had been claiming, reclaiming their land. Uh, you know, the, the, the history can bear that out, the newspaper reports, the media reports, research can bear that out, that they, you had a standoff between the Muslim and the government and it eventually culminated in the coup d'etat. However, I will not, um, I will not take away from the fact that uh, What uh, Miss James saw might have been a contributory factor, because as I said earlier, there was a whole socio-economic uh, tensions taking place in the island, and indeed that might just have been um, a part uh, within the whole uh, reason, the whole rationale behind.
0: So, what were so that was a a huge thing in in the the region, Um, and it certainly spawned a lot of articles, um, a lot of um, scholarly articles about the event. So, what were the social ramifications of that in Trinidad?
2: Well, I, you know, when you look at the coup and the damage, uh, the wanton destruction, etc., that took place, it is said that the coup set Trinidad and Tobago back by at least twenty years. Yeah, it set us back by at least twenty years. Port of Spain was practically destroyed. Wow. Businesses in Port of Spain were practically destroyed. There was much looting. Lives were lost. Police officers uh, lost their lives. Civilians lost their lives. So it affected uh, families as well. The moral and social fabric of many communities um, were destroyed. Because as a result, you had approximately 134 members of the Muslim of the Muslim uh, led by Abu Bakr who were incarcerated for a, whole, uh, a long period of time. You had a fracture or a fissure between the, the judiciary, members of the judiciary in that someone was saying that the, there was an amnesty that was signed and it was signed on the duress uh, Some were saying that it was not on the US and it was um, actually a legal and a binding mm-hmm. document. So you had a whole range of ramifications. Um, you know, to me, Trinidad and Tobago never really got back on uh, a strong footing, or we are now at a position in 2020 where Trinidad and Tobago should have been at by probably 2005 to 2010. So it has set us back quite a lot in terms of economics, even in terms of the how Trinidad and Tobago is seen in the eyes of the global public. Um, you know, it's always mentioned that you guys had a coup cool down there and, you know, uh, governance is poor. You guys cannot manage your third world and, you know, you're supposed to be independent, but apparently you're still colonial. So there were a whole host of, um, as you say, ramifications emanating from that 1990.
0: Okay. But you know what's interesting, though, because we're talking about top level ramifications, social aspects, the economy, uh, the economy, it's, it's one of the best. It, it is the best in the English speaking Caribbean. It's, a, it's more advanced. I think you guys have um, more structured industry you have um, food you have um, pharmaceuticals you have um, business industry so if 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 the the coup set back Trinidad twenty years as you say, how did the economy come to what it is today that it's the it's the biggest economy or the most profitable economy in the region
2: well to answer that question, I'll say that Trinidad and Tobago's economy um has always if i may, has always been one of the stronger um, economies in the Caribbean. For some people, um, you know, it has been described as the Americas. Port of Spain has been described as the Americas of the, the Caribbean. But we have always been strong um, with oil, uh, petrochemical, some exports, um, downstream okay. industries, etc. Um, during the period of 1986 to 1991, um, the then Prime Minister Ian Robinson had made some major changes in terms of restructuring the um, the economy. Uh, trying to cut public expenditures, uh, trying to move us from an import-based economy to probably an export-based economy. So at that point in time, we were restructuring. There were some hard decisions that were made. Public servants uh, were sent home. In fact, my mother lost her job at that point in time. Right? Um, you had the introduction of value-added tax and a whole range of other taxes. And history will bear us out and bear testimony to the fact that had it not been for those stringent measures that took place between 1986 to 1991, we would not have been in that coordinate position that we okay. are in now. So what I'm trying to say, um, Julie, is that despite the fact that we were set back by 15 to 20 years as a result of the, the, the coup attempt the fact remains that successive governments uh, after 1991, irrespective of people's political affiliation, successive governments after that um, event, I think they managed our economy uh, in a very stringent manner where belts tighten um, was, was key. In fact, people were saying, well, we can't tighten our belts anymore. How, how much further could we tighten our belts? So it's a the position that we are in today has a lot to do um, with more so the People's National Movement uh, government uh, putting very good stringent measures in place as well as, you, you know, you had other governments at the time, but uh, subsequently. But I think that the stringent measures that were put in place um ensured that we had a turnaround, not only in the economy, but in the social, um, educational, and other aspects in Trinidad and Tobago.
0: Okay. Okay. And speaking of the People's National Movement, there is an election coming up in Trinidad and Tobago yes. on August 10th yes. in particular. And the People's National Movement is led by the current Prime Minister, Keith Rowley. And the challenger is Kamala, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess up her name, Kamala Bashir,
2: <laughs> Kamala yes. Poussad-Bissess. Kamala Poussard, I just know So the going. government uh-huh. is led by Dr. Keith Rowley, and the, the opposition, Mrs. Kamala Pusadvises.
0: Okay. So this is a very so this is a very interesting election because they're having it during a pandemic.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, some Trinidadians can't go home. Um, the borders are completely shut down, which I and it's still shut down, which I think is a very very smart move for the island. What is at risk for this election? Considering that we're in a pandemic, um, police killings are up by 86%, domestic violence violence is up in the country, um, and a whole other cascade of other issues. What's at risk besides carnival?
2: (laughs) Well, at risk here is, to me, governance. Who forms the next government? At risk is whether uh, the electorate would retain the people's national movement or would they be a change to the opposition the united national congress for some people the risk is that if you have a change
1: in government the borders will open and there will
2: be an influx of not community spread but um persons entering the country um with the with the covid 19 um survivors now why, why i say that that's what what's at risk outside of a, um a new government is that the opposition has been saying open the borders open the borders remove the restrictions remove the restrictions and i have yeah. seen where in fact the oxford university i think it's the oxford university in england said that we the Trinidad to trinidad as number one in the world in terms of managing um, the pandemic and Yeah, yeah, we were ranked as the number one. It's there, you know, it's out there for people to see that. Yeah, I'm almost certain, my memory serves me well, I think it was Oxford University, but they had ranked us as number one in terms of how the pandemic was managed. And, you know, on the other hand, you have the opposition saying, open the borders, relax um, all of these restrictions. But what we are seeing within Trinidad and Tobago is that the government started relaxing some of the restrictions. you are seeing community spread of of the pandemic. So for me, um, irrespective of what takes place on August the, the, the 10th, I'm thinking that the major risk at this time is having a change in government that might facilitate opening up the borders and um, spreading of this uh, virus uh, in a rather debilitating manner throughout Trinidad and Tobago.
0: So what is the impact? So I know that um, um, earlier this year, I think there were, what? I think within a month, there was like, within a week, there was maybe two or three domestic violence um, killings in the in the in the country in terms of crime because crime is a is a very very big thing um Jamaica Jamaica's on a on a bigger scale there's more people there and crime is high but in Trinidad people mm-hmm. people forget that Trinidad yes. is at a very it's it's in the middle of it's in the middle of the pasta pasta or in the middle of the um what do they call it I forgot what you guys call it the um oh my gosh my Trini friends are gonna um um, come for me with this. We're in. They're in the middle of the um the the drama. Essentially, they are. You have the United States of north, which is the biggest consumer yeah. of illicit drugs in the world, and then you have South America, particularly Venezuela, where the drugs get trafficked through. Mm-hmm. And then there is a immigration crisis, where a refugee crisis in particular, I would say, where Venezuelans are coming to Trinidad. So with with that mixture, and then on top of that as well, because because coming, again, coming to Carnival, because I know that's what everyone in the diaspora is more familiar with, with Trinidad, and primarily the reason why they go um, and visit the island as well, there's a huge, huge, huge um, racial divide um, amongst um, Indians and um, Afro-Trinidadians. So in terms of crime, so, yeah, so in terms of crime, I think that was, that's one pillar. What are the impacts on of the election or what, what are the risks with crime with the, uh, with the election? Well,
2: crime, uh, Judy, crime has always been at the top of the election
1: list um, since I began voting many months ago, right? Um, I think crime,
2: uh, and I'll get back to your answer directly, but I think that yeah. crime Health and the economy are the major issues. However, within the last, uh, if I may say probably within the last 20 years, uh, we have seen a continuing increase in crime in Trinidad and Tobago and more so serious crimes. And successive governments have always, in my estimation, sought to use crime as a political tool. So that government, uh, before the election, when they campaigning, you'll hear we reduce crime in 90 days. And, and you know, I mean, I say, where? are these people getting these nonsensical ideas from? Crime in any country, doesn't just occur overnight, and it will not be um, removed, reduced overnight. We have to put the long-term systems and long-term plans in place. But because the society is so fed up of the crime situation, um, if you politicize it, and you say, 90 days, 120 days, we're going to do this, people are vulnerable because they're looking for solutions. <laughs> right? Yeah. So that, in the context of the present election, to get uh, to your direct question, in the context of the election, I think that crime will play a major role. You've already heard the government, the incumbent saying that we have done a lot in terms of crime. We have put systems in place. We have a new commission of police. We have rebranded the police. Um, you know, so they are putting their spin on it and you have the opposition saying um, crime is a runaway train in Trinidad and Tobago.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, how safe do you feel? So it will play an important role in the election. Now, what makes what makes crime... In the context of the election, very interesting is something that you mentioned um, in terms of the, the the racial dynamics. So, that for some people, irrespective of crime, irrespective of the economy, irrespective of social conditions, they are going to vote, but it is likely that they will vote for a particular political party. And you have the same on the other divide that irrespective of what you bandy about um, as solutions, even if they're not feasible, you find that you have. Um, a fixed amount of individuals for the party base who will support them. The key here for me is, Julie, would be those persons who listen to the issues and vote accordingly. We call them floating voters. They would be the key because you have some people like myself who listen to the issues and make a determination as to which political party can best serve um, my needs or the needs of the larger society. So it's in that context that I'm saying crime will play a role, but um I don't think that it will be Major, major. If I can put it that.
0: Okay, so what what is the where did this racial divide start? Oh. With, with yeah, <laughs> I know it it probably goes back to slavery, indentured servants, and slaves. But in modern times, is it still it's, is it still a lingering effects of slavery and colonialism? um Why why is it the way it is today?
2: julie our our uh, population in Trinidad and Tobago has certain distinct characteristics, um, and when you compare our population demographics as against the Jamaican population demographics, which you may be familiar with uh, or more familiar with, um our population here is probably about forty percent East Indians, thirty eight percent African descended, and we have a mixed population, uh, which could be somewhere in the twenties, and then you would hear about the one percenters, which are the minority. Um, in terms of uh, certainly in terms of numbers, not in terms of um positional power and economic wealth, but they would be what people refer to as the Trinidad Whites or the Syrian Lebanese population in Trinidad and Tobago own the majority of businesses. Uh they are referred to, I do not refer to them that way, but people refer to them as the one percenters. Right? Um, so if you understand that the, the, the demographics of um Trinidad and Tobago as against let's say Jamaica, and you try to understand that. At election time it tends to bring out the worst of people especially where power is concerned where people are seeing um governance and they are seeing the benefits that may flow from it because as much as we don't want to admit it uh, especially in trinidad and tobago you know there are concepts such as is we time now so whenever the just to draw uh, a reference whenever the unc is in power we time now and there's a perception that um persons who are afro-descended are cleansed out of office and replaced by lesser qualified persons of, of um of east indian descent and, and that goes uh, across the board whenever the pnm which is an afro-based party is in power so based on that whole demographic right um, people uh, tend to think that if one party is in power that they will get the largest and the other persons should suffer and i certainly don't subscribe to that leave. i believe that governments should govern for an entire country and that qualified people um, should be placed in positions not just people who support any political party uh,
1: okay. you know like all over the it would be possible in <laughs> the ideal the world. world but as you said you know we're not living in an ideal world yes
0: yeah. yeah i mean in my ideal world the yes. is a is a force to be reckoned with and everyone plays nice in the sandbox but here we are here we are so what you know what there's a there's something that just came to mind where you said the the two major political parties are kind of split along racial lines. And then we talked about the coup earlier. Where are, where do Muslim voters lie? Are they the floaters? What, what is, yeah, what is happening there?
1: Right. Um, the
2: interesting thing with the Muslim population in Trinidad and Tobago is that you have what is known as the Afro Muslim groups and the Indo Muslim groups, right? So there is a perception that the Afro Muslim mm-hmm. groups would support a, polit- a particular political party, and the Indo Muslim groups would support another political party.
0: Wow, that's that's insane. Even even outside of mainstream religion, and in the uh, religion itself, they're still divide We're still divided by exactly race. That is yep, yep, yep. that is that is crazy. That is crazy. So. I wanted to flip a little bit um, and talk about the recent police brutality um, incidences that or recent killings um, of uh, civilians by police, particularly um, in the Morvant-Laventil areas. And I think I would liken those areas to like Southside Chicago in the United States. Um, and between June 27th and 29th yes. there were about four killings in the area by police and going back their police killings have increased when compared to 2019 by 86% and there were protests the, there were there were things across social media to be honest that's how i caught it and i i I subscribed to a few Trinidadian, Trinidadian newspapers. So I, I, I saw it. But the first thing came to... When I first saw it, it was on social media. And a lot of people were concerned about what was happening down there. And it came at a, at a very, very interesting time where there are protests in the United States and across the world for police brutality. And we're in this phase, even though it's a whole pandemic, people are marching for social justice. So to dig deeper what is police brutality a, a thing in is it a big concern in trinidad as it is in the united states
1: um jody in trinidad and tobago police action always attracts attention so that you have um what
2: we call civilian journalists with their telephones etc okay but it doesn't show you civilian recordings do not show the full picture It shows generally, on a general (laughs) scale, when um, the police start to use force. However, you may hardly see the lead-up to the event. I say that to say that we do have um, a higher level of police brutality in Trinidad and Tobago. This year, I don't have the exact data, um, but from what I understand and from some of the data I have, um, police brutality, or what is perceived as police brutality, would have increased from 2019 to what we have at this point in July um, of
1: 2020 there is an increase. Uh, police brutality on the island um, is something that, in my estimation, has gone unchecked to a large extent for a long while.
2: There are there are instances there are instances where the use of force. And, and you know we must look at brutality in the, call, mm-hmm. the perceptions of brutality in the context of the use of force. Policy. And if police officers use force that is reasonable, then um, there would be no problem. However, in some instances, as we have seen on social media, whether it's in Trinidad and Tobago, the force that have been used is certainly not yeah. reasonable. However, we have a culture in Trinidad and Tobago that, um, yeah, it's a seven day wonder and people will protest for seven days and then it dies a natural death or it's swept under the carpet until you have another event of um, some form of
1: police excesses. Now, part of the
2: increase in police brutality in Trinidad and Tobago, in my estimation, has a lot to do with the current commission of police um, who mentioned that um, one of his policies is that one shot, one kill, right? And So police officers take their mandate from their leader and they are going out there. And the aim, to me, seems to be to kill.
0: And the leader of the um, police force is Gary Griffiths. Uh, the right. current
2: leader is Commissioner
0: of Police, Gary Griffiths. Okay, okay. Um, so what's what's important here, too, is mm-hmm. Lavantil and Morvan. Because when I was there, I, I got a little bit of a history lesson that those two areas, and correct me if I'm wrong, I may be forgetting, but those two areas were where the first, where slaves were first freed. Or that's where a lot of free slaves lived lived in Trinidad. Okay, but today it's mm-hmm. a very it's an area where there's a lot of high crime. Right. So it's kind of significant that there's a lot of these um, yes. police brutality incidences in that area. Has it always has it? Is it just a thing? No, or has it always been like this, where the incidences of police brutality are in that area?
2: Right, let me let me just backtrack. A bit before i answer the question Lavantil, most of Lavantil and um over you know they the suburban urban areas in that you know they're just on the the limits of water speed and what happened is that um, many of the persons mm-hmm. who came from the smaller islands settled in these areas so they would come by the boat and not having money the easiest place to settle is someplace close and again history will be this i've conducted the research and it has shown that the majority of people in the Lavantale port of spain area okay most of them have family members in every island in the caribbean so part of it has to do with the fact that um some of these individuals um were indeed free slaves both locally and from the caribbean who came to the, the area looking for jobs so that the historical, uh, aspect historical is quite important if we are if we to understand um, what's taking place now. So historically these people have always felt deprived because while the East Indians, indentures, were given land on being freed, the Africans okay. were not given anything. They weren't given land or anything on being freed. So they have always felt oppressed by the colonial government, then colonial government, as well as governments now. Indeed, um, those areas that you mentioned the Lavantel, the Mova, Uh, some of the hotspots of crime in Trinidad and Tobago. It doesn't take away uh, from the fact that you have um, hotspots in other areas, some of which are predominantly East Indian um, occupied. But the majority of um, uh, the the crime that you spoke about takes place in um, the Port of Spain Police Division, the Northeastern Police Division, which encompasses both um, the Lavantil and the Mobile. Okay. Okay.
0: Okay. That, That is very interesting. So... I know that there is a huge, huge, huge um, Jamaican population in Trinidad. Are they living in that area, the Laventille Morvan area?
1: No, as I said, um, Julie, based on
2: the historical antecedents and based on my own personal observations. People generally, when they migrate, generally reside in those in the areas close to the capital city, whether it's Kingston, in town, whether it's Kingston, um, whether it's Castries. Whenever people, or even in, in, in the USA, people tend to live closer um mm-hmm. to the cities, right? Um, so that, uh, importantly, you have a Jamaican population, a very large uh, Jamaican population in Trinidad and yeah. Tobago, and I'm not only saying Trinidad, Tobago, because a lot of the um, Jamaicans, and I can speak uh, to the female Jamaicans. Um, I have observed them working in the hotel industry in Tobago. Many of the females, you observe them working in the hotel industry in Tobago. Um, In Trinidad, they tend to be more involved in food and security um, services. So in the um, Mova Lavanti area, you may find a lot of um, little chicken stands, etc. And again, this is some personal knowledge.
0: Yep. Uh, Same here. I went to one and they had jerk chicken, jerk pork and to my knowledge um, folks, which I <laughs> ran away from immediately <laughs> immediately so so we, we I think we've established that crime is definitely an issue it it, yes. it affects um, it's in particular it's in concentrated areas it's all over the island but particularly it's in concentrated areas closer yes. to the city and we know that in the election it's going to have um, crime is going to be a big issue, as it always is. Going to the infrastructure of the with the police force and with crime, um, and with crime fighting and all of that, the infrastructures that are in place right now and the current technology is that or, or is that effective in solving crimes or battling crime?
1: Judy, I would say that the infrastructure is at best poor, is at best weak. Technology, minimal. So, for example, okay. globally, people are moving towards police departments, are moving towards body-worn cameras. Because body-worn cameras will give you more truth than a civilian journalist, right? Mm-hmm.
2: So, that under the then commissioner of police, acting commissioner of police, Stephen Williams, he introduced a pilot project where I think it's about 150 police officers who are given body-worn cameras. To date, Whenever I am on the streets, I have not seen any police officer using body worn cameras. In fact, I have conducted research on body worn cameras in Trinidad and tobago right uh and body worn cameras are uh, they practically non existent something as simple as car cams non existent right um when you travel to the u s a when you travel to Europe when you travel to the United Kingdom, and again, I've had the fortune the good fortune of seeing these things firsthand mm-hmm. you know I remember touching down at um MIE and exiting, and I went. I, I saw a police vehicle parked outside, and I observed a laptop in the vehicle. And you know, I went and I was peering in and looking because it caught my interest. And a police officer came to me and he asked, you know, well, you know, why are you looking into the vehicle? And I explained to him that you know, I'm a criminologist, I'm an attorney at law, um, because of course, you might know, want to make myself quite clear. I'm safe and I'm not. <laughs> I am not a criminal, right? Understanding the U.S. Uh, political and uh, policing situation. And, you know, I asked him about it and he said, you know, yes, um, this is a laptop and it's connected to a database and even showed me, um, Judy, how it's used. He said, yeah. for example, that vehicle, um, if I want to run the number plates, I can run the plates and I can know who is yeah. the past owner, who is the present owner, if you have a citation, etc. That doesn't happen in Trinidad Island to me. Mind you, it doesn't happen in most of the Caribbean islands. So that if, let's suppose, have, um, a crime occurs and you get the number plate, the license plate of the the getaway vehicle for example Mm -hmm. you would call that into the police station and there are few police stations that have a database that is linked to what we call a licensing office the licensing office is where you have all the vehicles being registered etc very few police um, stations have that direct link where you can get um, that information quickly so one, body one cameras almost non-existent car cams, non-existent laptop in vehicles where you can do easy tracing etc non-existent my biggest pet peeve, June is that in Trinidad and
1: Tobago, we are an island that is surrounded by water. And I would think
2: that any police department that is surrounded by water will have a marine branch. I am certain, for the fact that Jamaica has a marine branch, you can correct me if I'm incorrect, but I know Jamaica had a marine branch. I know that St. Lucia, which is a smaller island and has less resources than Trinidad and Tobago, they have a marine branch. Now, in Trinidad and Tobago, we once had a marine branch, but for some reason, it was removed. And I've attended numerous conferences and I've asked numerous ministers of national security about it. None can give me an answer. Right. Now what that has led to Julie is that we have a coast guard, but coast guards are not necessarily for the protection of your internal borders, your internal waters. They are not for patrols. Now if you understand policing, the role of policing is maintenance of law and order. We have several smaller islands of Trinidad and Tobago where people actually reside and where people People use the waterways for commerce, for economics. People travel between Trinidad and Tobago, etc. Now, the lack of yeah, a marine yeah. branch has facilitated what I term as land-based policing. You only patrol on the beach, in Trinidad and Tobago on the land. Now, we've had some murders taking yeah, place. For good. example, you had a murder taking place in the port of speed Let's say one mile off on a vessel. And you know what had to happen? The police had to call the Coast Guard and ask them for a vessel to go out on the crime scene. Oh,
0: my goodness. And you know what? What's it'cause if you see my face, if you could to see <laughs> my face right now my my mouth is literally on the floor because for such an island that is one in a very hot spot uh, North America. geographically um between South America and North America, and the fact that there <laughs> there's no there's no um um protection essentially for the island that is insane so 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 i know you've brought this up before that you've you've had conversations with um uh, ministers of national security and they kind of skirt the issue has it ever come to like a um a national spotlight like say in a um like with the prime minister of why there is no security on the waters but
2: i I honestly cannot say if it has ever come to the attention of any of the uh, prime ministers but i'm thinking if you are the prime minister then this is something that you should certainly know right i'm thinking that as a prime minister you would know about the the resources and what we have and what we don't have but people try to make the argument Judy, that we have a coast guard but if you understand the role of the coast guard the role of the coast guard is to protect your your EEZs, your economic um zones those zones are further offshore right They would protect more or less your deeper waters, whereas uh, the police would be patrolling your more inner waters, the seas, the waterways that are closer to land. Because, as I said, you have the landforms that are dotted just off um, the the, the island. And, you know, just to digress a bit, if you were to look at the city of Miami Police Department, Miami, they're almost in, in a similar situation to Trinidad and Tobago and again because i do a lot of research on policing you know i went to the city of miami police department um and observed their marine police you know they have boats they have jet skis they have some moped like um equipment so they have yeah almost everything now you know we we may be averse to looking outside because you know in the caribbean there's a culture that everything that comes from outside is good Look within to find solutions. But there is nothing wrong with looking outside for solutions as well Right. And you know, I looked at how the um city of Miami Police Department, how they operate, and I was very much impressed because they operate in a similar environment to Trinidad and Tobago where they're surrounded by water, and you have Star Island and all these other islands in the in, in the Bay of Miami and, yeah. you know? But to bring it back closer to home, as I said, you have Jamaica, which is larger than Trinidad and Tobago, but if I may see probably not as well resourced. you have St. Lucia, which is smaller and certainly not as well resourced, but they have a marine branch. So I'm saying in terms of technology and all these other things, uh I don't mm-hmm. think that they that the effective in Trinidad be good at all. Zero rating um, in my estimation. Oh my goodness.
0: I, you know what? That didn't come to my mind because I'm like, I, I would automatically assume that you guys would have one, especially given yes, the, loca- the geographic location. And that just, is just,
2: insane. You, you move on, insane. You know, And if we were so, to add the fact that our borders uh-huh. are very porous, then you could understand the influx of migrants, as well as people moving from Trinidad and Tobago and going to places like St. Vincent yeah. and Grenada, and returning undetected, bringing in drugs and violence.
0: My goodness! Yeah. Wow! Wow! So, what can make what can be done to make Trinidad and Tobago safer?
1: <laughs> yeah, I told you we'd
0: we'd ask you hard questions. <laughs>
1: Right, well, Jody, that's a very, very, it's a hard question.
2: It's a very, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a hard examination type question. But, um, you know, it's a very good question as well, because it's something that as criminologists, you know, we often ask ourselves, you know, whenever people gather at rum shops and bars or on social occasions, you know, they always ask what can be done. But Jody, before I answer the question, I just want to put this spin on it. Mm-hmm. The question you ask is normally asked in Trinidad and Tobago, so what can you guys do? So whenever I go to functions, I try to tell people, if you need to introduce me, just introduce me as Wendell or as Wendell Wallace. Do not introduce me as a criminologist. Because you know what happens, usually when I'm, I'm introduced as a criminologist and lecture at the University of the West Indies? The first question that people ask, so what are you guys doing to solve crime? And my response is, you know, that's a poor question. It's not what you guys are doing. The question should be, what are we doing? Right? So that's my premise. I believe that we as a society can do things to make Trinidad and Tobago safer. So one, I believe that to make Trinidad and Tobago safer, we can use technology. It's imperative. That, that's where the world is going. We need to enhance um, technology. I studied in Northampton University in Newcastle. And on our induction, they told us, you need to be wary of the law and observe the law at all times. Because when you step out of your dormitory, on any occasion, you are seen over 150 times. You know what i did i went back to my dormitory and i started looking upwards and on every building that i could have seen there were at least five to six cameras right and then i understood for example how the london bombings and some of these things will solve and why they were solved so quickly that's because the technology is there the technology is used so one we have to start to use the technology it may be costly but we need to use it secondly business people and i'm using these as a specific category they need to take some responsibility for their own security put the technology in place so you have a business that makes thousands of dollars of profit and you have an unarmed security guard standing at the door it doesn't make sense not in 2020 right apart from that you know as a society we need to take responsibility as well right we need to take responsibility as well for safety and security we can't think that there will be a police officer everywhere to protect us right so we need to do what is known as target hardening where I reside is on a cul-de-sac, it's on a dead end. I have cameras, I have dogs, I have to um, increase the height of my walls, etc., because I am taking personal responsibility for my safety and security, right? It's very difficult. Not everyone may be in a position to do that, but some simple things as target-hardening. You know, Jodie, I observe students at the university, for example. I observe women walking in lonely areas, exercising at night times, not in 2020, right? We also need parents to, take, to have parental responsibility. For their children. Right? Um, one of the concepts that I very much like, there's a concept um known as an antisocial behavioral order that operates in the United Kingdom, where responsibility is placed on the parent to ensure that the child is not antisocial. So, in other words, the child can be out of the home between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. to attend school, they shouldn't be at the mall, they shouldn't have cameras with phones, etc. etc. I am seeing throughout the Caribbean, it's not only in Trinidad and Tobago, but you have children 10 ten, they're out on the streets at ten and eleven at night. Recently, a 14-year-old was gone down, right? He's liming on the street. Maybe I, am, um, maybe I grew up differently, but I can't understand why a 14-year-old should be liming on a street corner at 11 o'clock at night, right? So there's a whole host of things you can do, social, economics. I need to touch on legislation, legislation and social activities, um, right? <laughs> That's really. So that we also need to create opportunities, right? Far too often, politicians and legislators, they think that they can legislate and Arrest our way out of crime that is an expensive failure and it's a no no. What we need to do is to not only create social opportunities for the younger persons but we also need to market them. In other words, several youths will tell me, But you know, Dr. Wallace, I didn't know you have this program. So we have some of the programs, you know, which just that people are unaware, the youths are unaware of them because they may be in a uh, hidden somewhere. The youths are now into technology, so we need to use the technology to get those things out, right? So create social opportunities, um, stop. Thinking that uh, creating new legislation, new pieces of legislation can actually solve or make us safer in Trinidad and to And last but not least, I would like to see an enhanced police presence, both on land and, you know, on the waters. It doesn't have to be uh, 200 police officers with 50 vessels, etc. But we need to protect our borders first and foremost. So if we protect our borders, we protect some of the drugs that are getting in. We keep them out and gun- drugs normally comes with guns. Our borders are porous. We need to protect our borders better. Right, and we need our legislators to stop thinking that crime is a legal problem. Crime is not a legal problem, Jody. Crime is a social problem. So we need to put social problems in place to assist these youths, and and by extension, those um, factors and issues that I mentioned can certainly be used to enhance our safety and security um, in Trinidad. Today.
0: So thank you for that to explain what can be done to make Trinidad safer. What about the entire region? Because Jamaica, the crime is high. Haiti. Hmm. Haiti, the crime is high because I've heard that there is a guns for meat trade between Jamaica and Haiti. Trinidad, crime is high. I think the only country within the region where crime isn't as high is probably Antigua. And I think last year, their um, overall crime was down on a hold. So what can be done in the region to have, one, people talk to each other, and have a cohesive um, forest of battle crime?
2: Well, I think, Julie, on a regional basis that we have been doing, um, we have been trying. So I know within CARICOM, you have CARICOM impacts. Um, you have the, there's a regional body, another regional body, I think they call themselves RSE or RSE. They, they are also involved. So I know from the level, from the highest level at CARICOM that CARICOM has been tried. There's Association of Caribbean Commissioners of Police. I know that they have been tried. What I think can be done to ensure that the Caribbean is much safer is we need to protect our borders better. Most of these small islands, um, in fact, in some instances, when you look at the national budgets of some of the small islands, their budgets are, are smaller than some transnational organized crime groups. Right? So we want to start by doing what is known as concentric zones. It may sound heavily theoretical, but it's not. It's like trying to protect your outer border. If you think of the Caribbean as one, and you try to protect your outer border by drawing a circle around the Caribbean, just to visualize it. So if we draw a circle around the entire Caribbean region, but each island, each island's government try to protect their own circle, which is in Jamaica and Trinidad and Tobago, Antigua, um, St. Lucia, etc. We protect our borders, but we do it on the basis of um, some sort of inter and intra-regional cooperation, right? Um, I think that, that, that's a major step. The, our borders are too porous, they're extremely porous. So we need to start protecting our borders better. We need. Um, Second, I think we need greater um, intra-regional um, cooperation uh, between the on a government-to-government um, basis. Far too often, you'll hear about squabbles. Um, the, the prime minister of Barbados apparently throwing some shade at, at the government in Trinidad and Tobago, who seems to be showing some shade at Grenada. And, you know, I think we need to to move Caricom forward in a
1: manner that is not just a talk shop, but something that is real.
2: Right, So those are two of the, the most important ways that I think um, from a government to government um, level, we can do that. Um, on other levels, um, you know, there are things that create job creation, social living conditions. Um, one of the things that I think that we can also do is that we have this great focus on academics. And, and I have no problem with it. But... You have children who feel left behind because they're not academically inclined. So we need to focus on the non-traditional areas, so that so that the United Nations' uh, position that no child is left behind will become a reality, rather than just uh, yeah. a, a nice school. Yeah,
0: and I definitely agree with you. Like, not the traditional education is great, but it's not great for everyone. Yeah. So, and then if you think about the labor force, actually, when you think about the economy, it's it's mm-hmm. powered by the labor force the productivity of the labor force. And if you don't have certain, um, I I think professions like electricians um, and welders and all that, the economy is not going to be so great as it is within the region. We have a lot of, we have a lot of accountants, a lot of lawyers, a lot of doctors, but there's really nothing in between. And you know what? Actually, it's interesting. Uh, We had spoken to a Jamaican politician um Imani Duncan Price and this is one of the things she brought up as well she was like we have a music industry we have managers and all that but below that there's nothing we can't we can't do like a a top 10 chart thing like they have with the United States and through most of all of Europe there's nothing there's no entertainment lawyer so then when they get into these um these contracts they're out there and they're like lost in the Bacchanal. And Bacchanal was what I was trying to remember earlier. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got it now, yes. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. The Bacchanal. Bacchanal.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I've been working on my Trini accent. So um, I'm not going to say it now because it needs work. But yes, I remember Bacchanal. <laughs> okay. So um, to wrap up, thank you so much for joining us. And then this is the hardest question I'm going to ask you. What is your favorite tea?
2: Without a doubt, the favorite tea is what we call bush tea.
0: Bush tea? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Is there any particular type of bush? Because, you know, there's peppermint tea that I think most people drink. And some people drink the the ginger, too, straight from the bush.
1: Oh, so you want it to be something specific? Yes. Lemongrass.
0: Lemongrass. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Lemongrass. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, in Jamaica, we call it fever bush.
1: Fever grass. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. That
2: same thing. Yep. Yes. Yeah. That okay. sort of aroma. It, it, it me up that
1: Okay.
0: Okay. Yep. You know what? We we love it here. And the next time I'm in Trinidad, um, uh, which hopefully will <laughs> be twenty twenty two when the world opens back up. <laughs> I it's on my list to try um fever bush in Trinidad. Okay. Well, we thank you so much for joining us. Trust me, I I learned a lot today and okay. I think our listeners are gonna are, are going to learn a lot too. Because there's more there's more to Trinidad than just carnival. There's a larger issue as well. So I thank you so much for joining us. Okay, Julie, well before I leave,
2: I wanna thank um, you I wanna thank Julie, I wanna thank the entire staff at Mango Tea and I wanna thank your listening audience. I know that the uh so I wanna thank them for tuning in and you can see I really enjoyed and appreciate um, sharing some of my knowledge and some of my some of the information that I have. Uh, you, I certainly hope it was uh, useful.
0: Oh yeah. Listen, I um we had another um UE professor come on um on our program, Professor uh the culture doctor from Jamaica and mm-hmm. she told us about UE Open Campus. So I'm gonna look for your classes and sign up. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, you're welcome. Take care, June.
0: That wraps up our episode. Thank you again, Professor Wallace, for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you to our listeners. I really hope that you're able to understand another level of Trinidad and the Caribbean. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you have any questions, email us at mangotpodcasts at gmail.com. All right, listen out for the next episode coming soon.